This morning we have the Ryans who are going to lead us in the reading of God's word. The reading this morning is from uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses and the Lord that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mitiha, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchisha, Hashem, Hashabanana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it. All the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelialah, and the, Le- and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense that, and, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. In Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught all the people, said to do all people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they had heard the word of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine. Send portions to everyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing, because they understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the head of the fathers and houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, came to Ezra to scribe in order to study the word of the law. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses and the people of Israel should dwell in the booths and publish it of their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Some of the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of the God, in the square at the water gate and at the square the gate of Ephraim, at the assembly for those who had returned from captivity. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for, the, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. The word of the Lord.
Good morning. I'm going to begin this morning speaking more directly to the children among us, as we typically do every Sunday morning. And so kids, as you might be aware, there are many other churches all around the country who are meeting this morning, and typically in a church there's going to be a sermon. Now what is your guess for the average length of a sermon in America? How long do you think it lasts for? Eighteen minutes, twenty minutes, ten minutes, fifty. Any other guesses? There's some close ones. One hundred and twenty minutes for the average sermon. Got to be out here a little longer. Yes, twenty-five, getting closer. Thirty, getting closer. Forty-five. Thirty-seven minutes. On average, in America, a sermon lasts for 37 minutes. Now, that's just the average. And it turns out that when you actually look at different uh, Christian denominations or different Christian traditions, there's actually a very wide variety, wide disparity. So there's four different like, major groups of Christian denominations. There's the historically black Protestant churches. There's evangelical churches, of which we would probably be grouped in that section. There's mainline churches, Mainline is typically Episcopal, Presbyterian, Methodist, and so the other churches on exposition, and Catholic. So out of all those, which do you think is the longest? Historically black Protestant churches come in at 54 minutes a sermon. Which one is the shortest? Catholic. 14 minutes. Beginning to end of the sermon, they're done in 14 minutes. Evangelicals are about the average 39 minutes. Mainline churches, 25 minutes. And uh, I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of one of my favorite stories when I was growing up. When I first read this in the Bible, I was like, just baffled. Why, why was this story in the Bible? But it comes, you might have read it before, but it comes from Acts chapter 20. Some of you nodding your heads, you know what I'm talking about. Well, this happens in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul is one of the main characters in the book of Acts, and he gives a sermon. And it says this, On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when we are gathered together to break bread, they're at church, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul is an itinerant preacher, church planner. He goes to this group of people. He's about to leave them the next day, and so he he is just talking and talking, sharing with them everything that God has revealed to him. And he talks all the way until midnight. And it says, there are many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus remember that name, Eutychus, he was sitting at the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and longer. And being overcome by sleep, Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul's sermon was so long that Eutychus fell asleep, fell out of the window and died. But Paul went down, he bent over him, Taking up in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little while, long, a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Isn't that an amazing story? Paul gave such a long sermon that someone fell out of the window, died, but came back to life. And what's very interesting is typically when characters are named in the Bible, that means that they're still alive at the time of the writing of the letter. So Eutychus 
is probably still alive when the book of Acts is being written. So you could go to Jerusalem and find Eutychus, and he could tell you about the time in which he fell asleep during Paul's sermon and fell out of a window. Now, do you think Eutychus would probably be a little more careful in the future listening to sermons about not falling asleep? Well, this morning, we're going to talk about a, another long sermon in the Bible, one that lasts six hours. Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, which we're going to look at this morning, he, it says that he, gives, uh, he reads from the book of the law from morning, which is just the word for light, which probably means dawn, all the way until midday, it's so about noon. So probably for five to six hours, Ezra is reading the Bible. And this morning, we're going to talk about who the Bible is for and what the Bible says in this six-hour sermon that Ezra gives. So please pray with me as we look into it. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the light that you give us. We pray, God, that you would, in the same way that you enlighten our world each morning with the sun— that you would enlighten and enliven our hearts and our minds to hear your word, to understand it, and to obey it. We pray that you would show us how your word is for all people and that your word ultimately brings us true and lasting joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we're looking at Nehemiah. We're continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you were to ask most people, what is the book of Nehemiah about? I think most people would probably respond, it's about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, right? So Nehemiah comes from Babylon because the wall has been broken down, uh, the city gates are destroyed, and all the people need help to rebuild the city wall. And it's true that the story of the rebuilding wall does take a lot of the portion of the book of Nehemiah, and it is very important, but you have to know that the rebuilding of the wall is not the main point of the book of Nehemiah. It is certainly important and it's necessary, but rebuilding the wall is more like preparation for the main event. It's the introduction or the prologue to what's really important in the book of Nehemiah. And how do we know this? Well, listen to how Nehemiah himself describes the city of Jerusalem after the wall has been rebuilt. So this is chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Now when the wall had been built... And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So Nehemiah sets up his brother and says the most important thing about him is not that he was skilled or he had the necessary expertise or background, but he was a God-fearing man. He was the right man to lead that community. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. And this next verse, chapter 7, verse 4, is one that's really important. It says this, the city was wide and large, speaking of Jerusalem, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Did you catch that? The wall has been rebuilt. All the gates have been repaired. This is ready to accept people, but it says that there are very few people within the city. And the rest of chapter 7 is a genealogy of all the people who have returned from exile. And at the very end of the chapter, we find this statement in verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel, they lived in their towns. They did not live in the city of Jerusalem. They lived in all the surrounding towns outside of Jerusalem. So you might be familiar with the phrase, if you build it, they will come. Well, Nehemiah, 
along with the help of so many of the people, they have built the wall, they have rebuilt the city, but the people have not yet come. They've not returned. The flight away from the city out to the suburbs, it's not been reversed. The people have united for 52 days in rebuilding the city wall and its gates, but now they've scattered again, each back to their own town outside of the city, which means that there's still very much work to be done in creating a people to be in God's place to experience and enjoy God's presence. So the physical rebuilding of the wall, although it's very important in the book of Nehemiah, it's not the main point. The main point is rebuilding the city and the community within the walls. And so the high point or the climactic part of Nehemiah is actually our chapter this morning, chapter 8. Ezra's reading of God's word and the people's response to it is the most important part of the book of Nehemiah. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So we're going to be talking about two things. First, who the Bible is for. And secondly, what the Bible is about. So who the Bible's for and what the Bible's about. First, who the Bible is for. Read with me in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1. And all the people gathered as one man. Right, united. That's very important. As I said, up to this point, all the people have gone back into their towns. They've scattered. And then Ezra brings everybody back and gathers together everybody as one people into the square before the water gate. Now, if you're here a couple weeks ago, I spoke about the importance of city walls and city gates in ancient Israelite culture. We learned that the city walls and gates, they're important for the permanence, protection, and purpose of the city. And in particular, we learned that the city gate complex isn't just the way to get into town. It's not just the way to protect the city, but the city gate is really the heart of the city. It's, it's where all of the town's civic life is centered on. That's why rebuilding the walls and its gates are so important. So that all the people can gather together to hear from God's word in a safe and secure place. Verse 1 continues. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And that probably refers to um, the whole entire Torah. Some people think it refers to just the book of Deuteronomy. But I think more likely refers to all of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. So Ezra, the scribe, he brings the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. He, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both the men and the women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate, as I mentioned earlier, from early morning until midday, about six hours. In the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. Now I want to pause for a moment here on this strange group of people that Nehemiah refers to as all who could understand what they heard and those who could understand. Who do you think that this is referring to? Kids. Do you ever wonder what you're doing in here with all these adults. Why do we do church all together instead of separating into various groups based on different ages? Have you ever thought about that? In so many parts of our lives, we separate kids from adults. But here at our church, we don't do that. Why? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8 is the answer. Nehemiah chapter 8 is the reason that you're here in what's sometimes called big church with us. It's because you can understand what you hear. 
And not only can you understand what you hear, but everything that is being said is for you as well. From the very beginning, by God's design, God's word has always been intended for all people, men and women, young and old alike. And that's precisely, in fact, what it says in the book of the law. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy that Ezra is reading from, it says this in chapters 31, verses 9 through 13. So this is when God gives Moses originally the book of the law, and it says this. Moses wrote this law, and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel, and Moses commanded them, at the end of seven years, every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, which, not coincidentally, is exactly the time when Ezra is reading the law to these people in the time of Nehemiah. At the Feast of Booths, when all Israel shall come to appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and all the sojourners within your town, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And in order that their children, who have not yet known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You see, it's God's design that children and youth might learn to fear the Lord and be careful to do all the words of his law together with their parents and adults. But here in America, I think we've largely gotten this backwards. There's this wonderful book. With, it's, it's kind of a mouthful of a title, but it's called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And I think the author's really onto something. His thesis is that youth culture, particularly as it relates to Christianity, think of things like pop worship music, short-term mission trips, seeker-sensitive outreach, and undue emphasis on experience and entertainment. He says all these things that began as innovative ways to reach young people have now largely come to define the normal Christian experience for all ages, not only youth. It's a classic example of the tail wagging the dog. And this juvenilization of churches has led to what this author claims to be widespread uh, spiritual immaturity, consumerism, and self-centeredness with neither intergenerational community nor theological literacy. In other words, instead instead of young people, as we see here in the book of Nehemiah, sitting under the regular teaching and preaching of God's word together in the community of faith, they've been siloed away in various programs of varying degrees of biblical and theological fidelity. It's little surprise then that many have trouble reintegrating into big church once they graduate from college and there's no longer programs catered specifically for them. This is why I love Nehemiah 8 so much. Nehemiah 8 makes such an emphasis that God's word is for all people. Men and women, young and old. Listen closely to how many times these next few verses that I read, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, how many times Nehemiah repeats the phrase, all the people. It's impossible to miss. Verse 3, the ears of all the people were made attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood Mattitiah Shema, 
Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masiah on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hana, Peliah, and these, all these names are the Levites. And so it's these Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's an additional encouragement that Nehemiah has for you kids and adults as well. Just because you can understand what is being said doesn't necessarily mean that you always will or that it will come easily or naturally. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort and sometimes it takes help. Oftentimes, in order to understand God's word, it takes help. Here, the Levites help all the people to understand God's word. So the picture that we might have had earlier from Ezra reading the law for six hours was maybe Ezra standing up here like me with the book of the law in front of him and just reading for six hours straight. But that's not really what happens. Here it says, Ezra's reading the law, but at the same time you have Levites all throughout among all the people helping to give explanation about what the law means so that all the people can understand it clearly. The people needed help from its leaders in order to stand, understand God's word. So don't get frustrated if you're to read the Bible and you don't understand what it says immediately. That's okay. That's normal. It happens to me too. So many times I'll open up a passage, even the passage I'm about to preach on, read it and say, God, I don't really understand what this is saying. Will you please help me? And God has given us so many resources all around us in order to help us understand his word. So find those people and resources who can help you. Your parents. Even on the way back home from church, Mr. Wong said this. What did he mean by this? Can you help me to explain this? Nothing would make your parents happier than if you were to ask them questions about God's word. Join a Bible study where you're regularly studying God's word with others. Ask for recommendations on book to read that will help you to understand the Bible better. All of us here can understand the Bible. Yet, all of us here also need help in doing so. So who's the Bible for? It's for everybody. What does the Bible say? That's what we'll find out in verses 9 through 10 and following. Verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, they said to all the people, This is a day that's holy to the Lord your God. Therefore, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the situation is Ezra, along with the help of all the Levites, they're reading and teaching God's word to God's people. And in response, the people are weeping 
as they hear God's word. Now, why do you think they're weeping? It's probably because they realize all the ways in which they have not followed God's laws. And if you continue, if you read Nehemiah chapter 10, it will outline some of those specific ways in which, the way, in which the people have not been following God's laws. But the people, they realize how far they have fallen short, how they have rejected God's commands, how they've been more concerned with their own houses than with God's house, and they weep, they mourn, and they experience deep grief and sorrow over their sin. But what does Nehemiah tell them? He says, don't mourn. Do not weep. But instead, recognize that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So Nehemiah sets two things in contrast to one another. On the one hand, there's grief. On the other hand, there's joy. On the one hand, legitimate mourning and grief because the people are confronted by their disobedience and disregard for God's law. Now the question is, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a proper response to conviction of sin when you recognize the way in which you've fallen short of God's? Shouldn't we weep? Shouldn't we be grieved over our sin? Shouldn't we be sorrowful and repentant for our sin and our selfishness and our inability and lack of desire to do God's will? Like, don't the people properly respond to God's word by mourning? And on the other hand, there's joy. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So which one are we to choose? Given the option, do we choose grief over our sin or do we choose the joy of the Lord? What does Nehemiah say? Nehemiah says, choose joy. Now this doesn't mean that we should never feel remorse over our sin or that's wrong to feel grief over the suffering and brokenness of this world. But his acknowledgement that the default state for the Christian should be one of joy. At its core, Christianity is a religion of joy. So if your Christianity is not one of joy, then in some way we're doing it wrong. The important question then that we need to ask is, what defines the joy of the Lord? If Nehemiah says, choose joy instead of grief, what is he asking us to choose? What is the joy of the Lord that can be our strength? Our strength is another way of saying, what do you rely upon and count on when you encounter troubles and trials in this world? That's your strength. What's your comfort when you're distressed? What's the secure foundation on which you seek to build your life? That's the strength. And Nehemiah says, let that be the joy of the Lord. So what is that joy? There's a little bit of preview of next week's sermon, which is on Nehemiah chapter 9. But the joy of the Lord is to save sinners. That is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is to be gracious and merciful and steadfast, full of love in response to human sin and rebellion. The joy of the Lord is God's grace to sinners. We see this in one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible. This is Exodus chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. In response to Moses asking God to show him what he is really like, verse 5 says this in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. So when it says he proclaimed the name of the Lord, this is like his true character. 
It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious God, merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, this character of God as revealed in the Bible is why the Israelites are commanded to choose joy. Exodus 34, the Lord's revelation of his holy character, it happens in the context of Israel's greatest sin. So if you're familiar with the story, God delivers ancient Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, through miraculous deeds, through his prophet Moses. They cross the Red Sea. They're joyful. Moses goes up the mountain in order to receive the very words and commands of God And while Moses is up on the mountain, face to face with God, the people create a golden calf to worship. They break the very first of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And in that moment, it's in that precise moment where God shows what his true character is like. Fully within God's right to punish the Israelites. But what does God do? God forgives them. Why? Because it's his joy to save sinners. It's his joy to keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see, the people don't forget their sin. Like, that's a very important part to remember about Christianity. In Christianity, sin is a big deal. It's not that we say, um, you know, sometimes when you forgive somebody, they say, oh, don't worry about it. I say this a lot. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's okay. But sin is a big deal before God. God doesn't say, don't worry about it. He doesn't say it's not a big deal. He says, it is a big deal. It's the only thing that can separate me from you. And the people recognize this. The people are deeply grieved by their sin. They recognize what their sin is. They're not flipping about it. But what Nehemiah says is, recognize your sin, but don't fixate on it. Don't let it overwhelm you. Don't be so focused on it that you're unable to see the joy of the Lord, the fact that God delights in forgiving you. God delights in showing your grace. So much of what we're attempting to do here at Terrytown Christian Church is to give you an alternative vision of what true joy is. What is the God-designed version of joy? And it's nothing like what the world typically offers or presents to you as joy. What the world offers you is what I would call a counterfeit joy. Y'all know what a counterfeit is? Counterfeit is something that uh, represents itself as something that is not. Counterfeit is something that may look and feel like the real thing, but it isn't. And it reveals itself over time because it's cheap, it breaks down, and it eventually falls apart. It can never actually give you what it promises you. And it doesn't last because it's not based on the truth. What are some examples? Perhaps joy is having a relationship, having that special someone. So so many of media, the movies, entertainment, music, 
is centered on this idea of if I just have this special someone in my life, my life and my joy will be complete. Is that true? Will a relationship give you the fulfillment that it promises you? And what happens when that relationship doesn't work out? Or joy is going after that next experience. Something to avoid the monotony and boringness of life. That next vacation, that next concert, that next sporting event. Something to look forward to other than my daily life. Now, I'm not trying to say that God doesn't intend Christians to be like, you know, somber people, never having any fun, never smiling. That's not what Christianity is. But what God calls Christians to is the pursuit of a deeper and more lasting joy. One that's not based on circumstances or the pursuit of pleasure, but one that's based on the truth. That's the only thing that can produce a deep and abiding joy in you. What is the truth? The truth is that, like those Israelites, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rejected his goodwill for our life. But the truth is also that God, in his joy to save sinners, sent us his son, Jesus, in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with him and experience the true joy that he desires for us in our lives. And so as we end this message, take these words from the end of Nehemiah chapter 8 to heart. These are verses 11 through 12. After Nehemiah commands these people to choose joy, choose the joy of the Lord, recognize who God is, the one who delights in saving sinners. Don't fixate on your sin. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood all the words that had been declared to them. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear God, We want to be like these people in the book of Nehemiah. We want to know the joy that comes from understanding the words that you declare to us. We pray that you would give us an accurate and true appraisal of our sins, our selfishness, our desire to pursue our own desires and our own goals apart from your will. Help us to see clearly the many ways in which we have fallen short of your standards. Yet at the same time, help us to see your joy. Help us to know you as the holy and righteous God who delights in saving sinners and rescuing us. Help us to see that in order that the joy of the Lord might be our strength. I thank you for all the children that you have blessed us with among us. I pray that even now you'd be stirring within their hearts. Planting seeds of faith within them that you'll continue to water and blossom and grow. We know there's so many uh, temptations in our world. Alternative visions about what a good life is and what true joy is. I pray God that you would help them and all of us to be able to recognize counterfeits when we see them. But instead that we would see the true joy that you've given us in Jesus Help us to understand that life is found in in him alone 
and that the life that you give us in him is abundant. We thank you again for your word and pray that we might pursue it, recognizing that is a word for all of us and for our joy. It's in his name, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.